This is Hope and Dread Extra. I'm Charlotte Burns. And I'm Alan Schwartzman. Hope and Dread was a program about the tectonic shifts in power in art. We've heard from people who are making change and from people who are resisting change. Our guests were brimming with ideas and off-topic thoughts that we just didn't have room for within the documentary series. But we didn't want to leave them on the cutting room floor. So now we're bringing you a set of short, sharp bonus episodes featuring some of your season favourites, which will be dropping twice a week. Today we're bringing you more from Dr. Kelly Morgan, who left the museum field because of racism. Her departure is a loss. Many of our listeners were struck by Kelly's appearance in the show, so here today is more. Kelly, who's now the Professor of the Practice and Director of Curatorial Studies, History of Art and Architecture at Tufts University, talks about how systemic racism undermines society and its cultural institutions, and how nonetheless, she feels hope. We talked about how those same fights are playing out in American culture and education wars, beginning with critical race theory. Critical race theory is a scholarly analytical theory that was put forth by several scholars, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, being kind of the most popular one. Um, but, you know, you think about Derrick Bell at Harvard, too, you know, was an early critical race theorist. And what this theory does is it really analyzes the way that the U.S. law, right, the U.S. legal system works to maintain and perpetuate racist structures that define cultural institutions, education, you know, the criminal justice system, the healthcare system, like the structures, you know, of everything that we know to be true in the country. And that was, you know, late 80s, you know, early 90s. It really took shape, you know, come like I said, coming through the 90s. And you really didn't study it, you know, or even really, you weren't really introduced to it unless you went into like the social sciences and the humanities at the graduate level. Or of course, if you went to law school, you know, you wanted to be a civil rights lawyer, you know, for instance, <laughs> you know, you really didn't see it right outside of that. I had no idea, you know, what critical race theory was until I got to grad school. So the issue now <laughs> is that parents are concerned in various states about, I would say, in my opinion, just the ideas, you know, of critical race theoretical study being offered or utilized in K through 12 education. And in all honesty, that has never been the case, <laughs> one, um, because like the level, right, is, is too high. What teachers are actually doing, you know, is, is teaching children how to have a more sophisticated understanding of race and racism in the country. And you have, again, you know, just white parents, um, and some Black ones too, you know, that are really concerned about this, right? So it's bursting, you know, the bubble of privilege um, that we tend to keep, you know, white kids in, you know, in suburban public education systems. And some of it, I think it's beneficial because a lot of these kids, I'm getting them, you know, as undergrads and they were asked, they've been asking these questions, you know, and not getting answers to them. And I think that's also um, another kind of fear, you know, because as long as people of color, you know, are kind of leading the charge, 
against systemic racism. We're familiar with that in this country. You know, if and ever white folks, particularly young white people, you know, begin to lead that charge, it becomes a completely different story. I think, you know, putting a white face, right, right on, on, and particularly a white American face, you know, on social change in this country um, would change the conversation tremendously. I think there's so many things. Obviously, there's racism, and there's also this generational fear of um, things changing. Oh, that I think that's that's absolutely true. You know, I've said, and this has been a very controversial statement. You know that what we're what we're witnessing, you know, in terms of this anti-critical race or anti-anti-racism, <laughs> you know, response is younger boomers and Gen Xers. We're dealing with two generations of people who have never had to do anything in their lives other than be white. And then society changed. And then this is just a manufacturing example, right? So you can't walk into the plant and get the job, you know, that your granddad had, that your great granddad had, you know, that your dad had, because the plant no longer exists. Like that industry is gone, you know, because that was a generational sort of ace in the hole, right, for you and your family, you've never even put a resume together before, you know, so you find yourself kind of, you know, out on a limb at 55, you know, where you should have been, you know, or you felt like you should be planning for retirement, that extra 10, 15 years that you thought you were going to be able to work, you can't. Not only do you not have the skill set, right, to re-enter the job market, but there's nowhere for you to go right? There's no program, right, for you to get into. And now your white middle-aged maleness, right, or white middle-aged femaleness doesn't just open the door, you know? And when that's been your life, when you've witnessed how, like, how so much of that was your parents' life, your grandparents' lives, and the narrative around that reality was they were just hard workers, you know? (laughs) Not the fact that they were also white, and I'm pretty sure, you know, they probably were hard workers, but where there's nothing in your orbit that has ever delineated out to you the privilege that comes, you know, from being white or being male. And then all of a sudden that's, that's like thrown on top of you, you know, as this reasoning, you know, for your life being what it is right now, it doesn't help. And so the negative response is actually pretty normal. You know, but because we don't have, you know, a very sophisticated understanding of the psychological ramifications, you know, of race and how race functions, it is this, the melee, you know, that we are, that we are witnessing right now where everybody's screaming. I showed up to the field at the perfect time. Right, because my first curatorial position was at the Birmingham Museum of Art. I hadn't finished my dissertation, but I was fresh out of coursework. So I'm a cultural historian. You know, I'm not a traditional art historian, but um, learning at Birmingham and learning at PAFA. And I was like, does no one else see the cycle? <laughs> you know, it's a pattern. I was going to ask you that because like you said in an interview same shit, different institution. Yes. You know, and I was like, it's a pattern. So no real answer. 
till finally a, a, a senior colleague of mine, white female senior colleague of mine said, you are not supposed to say that. <laughs> right. You're not supposed to ask that question, Kelly. And I said, yeah, maybe you aren't. And not meaning like her specifically. Right. But it was just like, hmm. So I did a look again as the historian that I am. I did a little digging and I said, oh, this is purposeful, too. You know, and that was the, you know, kind of the impetus from which, you know, I was approaching and, it's, and still do, you know, approach the work, approach institutions was trying to get people to acknowledge the fact that is purposeful, you know, from the market to Melanin Ford and <laughs> Getty is an ecosystem, right? That sort of begets itself you know, over and over and over again. How do you change the institution? You can't. We can't, you know, that's something I've just completely let go of, <laughs> you know, they can't be reformed. What I've decided, right, or, or come into is there's ways that we can disrupt, you know, so it's like you have to do the work in a way that forces them to expose themselves. How do you do that? You know, we had a core team process. So we worked as a cooperative across departments. So everybody's at the table at the beginning of any program in any exhibition. So there's input from pretty much <laughs> every department. And when you work like that, you know, you care about your colleagues and you care about your colleagues' ideas, opinions, their lives and livelihood. So whenever there was something coming, you know, down from like the senior level, you know, that was going to disrupt, you know, what we had collectively put together, we moved as a whole around it. Or we would do the bait and switch, you know, where we would have somebody distracting senior staff over here, right? While five or six of us are over here doing this other thing, you know, to make sure that the community is taken care of. It's guerrilla warfare, basically. So another like concrete example that I can give is, you know, for the Samuel Levi Jones show, it was the first show of a Black Indiana artist solo exhibition that the, that the institution had ever done, curated by the institution's first Black curator, <laughs> right? Co-curator was also a curator of color. And marketing just pretty much decided, we're not marketing this to Black communities. And I said, why not? And, and this was also something that was only communicated to me verbally. So this is the other thing that institutions will do, like when they're doing, you know, really undermining discriminatory, like racist shit, like they don't write it down, you know? So this was not an email, you know, or a memo. This is, you know, verbal meeting. And I said, you know, why not? And they were like, that's not our target audience. And so I said the same thing. I said, so, okay, Black artists, you know, two curators of color, the art is specific to the Black experience, and you're just not going to market it to Black communities. Okay. And I was like, you know, in my, I didn't say this to them in the meeting, but in my head, I said, yeah, I got something for that. You know, and so I reverted back to my early 20s when I worked, you know, on a street team, you know, for Def Jam, <laughs> you know, music. I worked for a, a record store, and we would, like, you know, every Friday, you know, you go out and you pass out a gazillion million flyers, you know, for whatever album is coming out and so that was my plan uh, along with some other things you know I did black radio in the city you know I did interviews um you know for all of the black publications but as a team you know one of the designers you know who had worked on some of the other you know um marketing materials and visual materials for the show you know that person said don't worry about it I'll make you a flyer 
you know, and I'll print it. Um, because I teach, I have a humongous network of students. And so I gave them out to my students, got together with some of my friends and every weekend, we put them flyers, <laughs> you know, everywhere that we could get them, you know, in the city. And it worked. People came, you know, people also came because of the relationships that they had with the artists, you know, personal relationships or professional relationships they had with me. It was like, we made ourselves visible, you know, to the community in Indianapolis in ways that the, that the administration didn't and didn't care to, you know, so when people are showing up, you know, and saying, oh my God, this is great. It's like, how is she doing this? <laughs> you know, how is she getting people through the door? So like, they didn't take the, they didn't take the audience engagement data, you know, for the show like they would have for any other show. The excuse for that was, you know, the it wasn't a flagship show, you know, um, that was in the major, you know, temporary gallery space. And I get that. And even the marketing excuse was, well, we don't do, you know, we don't market exhibitions anymore, right? Because exhibitions are not revenue drivers. And fine, I get that, you know, as an institutional procedure. But there should be exceptions made when there is a project, be it an exhibition, a program, whatever, that is doing for the institution what it claims to want to do in regards to equity and inclusion. And instead of actually supporting that, they specifically undermined it. And then I had to say to myself, like, oh, this is this is also purposeful. You know, so it's like undermining the success of the show, because what the show stands for, what the artist stands for, what I stand for is not what the institution stands for. You know, they don't want to do that, that deep, you know, equity work. I've realized now that this is the work, you know, the work to a certain degree is the trauma. You know, and it's my job to illuminate that, you know, and, and how massive, <laughs> you know, that is. And, and how it's happening on such a massive level. And, um, and so that's why in the, in the essay, and even in my public lectures, you know, you'll hear me ask that rhetorical question, like, you know, why has 30 years, you know, of quote unquote representative programming and exhibitions haven't changed the thing? Matter of fact, it's worse, you know, in some cases, you know, it's worse. And the silence speaks volumes, <laughs> right? When nobody can, act, can really answer that question or, people choose not to answer that question. I'm going to leave you with one question, which is the question I ask all the guests at the end. The show is called Hope and Dread. Looking forward, what do you feel? Both. Because I feel like, I think the dread is necessary. Or I should say the things that we're dreading, like the things that we kind of see, the things that I see happening, like the dismantling, the, the reconfiguration of the field is not going to be pretty. It's not going to be, and it's not going to be short. You know, and it's not going to be pleasant. And that is like, ooh, you know, <laughs> scary to think about. But I feel like it's necessary. And I think staying in that space of necessity for it gives me hope because I know one that I represent and two that I am training. All the people are so many people who know how, who have the skills, right? And, and know how to rebuild the right thing in its place, you know? And it's like that part, it's like, I'm super hopeful because I'm like, yeah, we got this. For more from Kelly, tune into episode four of Hope and Dread, Burning Down the House, episode six, Take Me to Your Leader, and episode 12, 
Are you sitting uncomfortably? Listen to Hope and Dread Extra every Tuesday and Thursday and subscribe wherever it is you find your podcasts. Hope and Dread is brought to you by Art and the new editorial platform created by Schwartzman and. The executive producer is Alan Schwartzman, who co-hosts the show together with me, Charlotte Burns of Studio Burns, which produces the series. Robert Bound is our associate editor. Holly Fisher mixes and edits the sound. Additional research has been provided by Julia Hernandez, and our theme music is by the inimitable Philip Glass. <laughs>